Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist and avid fan of Advent and Christmas. <laughs> Is it weird to wish you a happy Advent? How about a thoughtful Advent? I'm going to start a trend by being more specific about what feeling and action I wish people on their holy days. This week, the ancient season of Advent has begun. Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, meaning a coming or arrival. Advent waits upon the coming or arrival of Jesus Christ. I'm going to shockingly quote Wikipedia here because it actually states the meaning of Advent succinctly and well. The season of Advent in the Christmas calendar anticipates the coming of Christ from three different perspectives, the physical nativity in Bethlehem, the reception of Christ in the heart of the believer, and the eschatological second coming. In other words, during Advent, we wait for Christmas, the celebration of the birth of the incarnate God. We anticipate His transformative entry into our hearts and our ongoing sanctification. And we declare our expectation that He will come again to judge the living and the dead, as we repeat in the Creed. Advent is multi-layered. This is my justification for kicking off this Advent series with an epiphany poem. Yes, that's right, a poem about the wise men. But here's why I'm starting with T.S. Eliot's The Journey of the Magi. Christians are pilgrims, wanderers in the world, not at home, but on a journey. Advent comes from the same root word as adventure. And we are these adventurers, pilgrims on a slow, meandering, strange trip home. The Journey of the Magi is not a cheery Christmas poem. It lacks joyful shepherds, the anticipation of a beautiful baby, beautiful Mary, and beautiful Joseph. This is your welcoming space if you're not feeling particularly joyful in your preparations for Christmas, if you're feeling far from home, if you're feeling like a broken wanderer, or if you're on your own particular and confusing journey towards the Christ child. This is the first of the four-part Advent series, and each week I'll be looking at a different poem, or poems for that matter. So, let's start. T.S. Eliot was born in St. Louis, Missouri in 1888. He came from a very prominent Boston family of Unitarians, and he eventually immigrated to England after initially coming for an education at Oxford. He became famous for his poems like The Wasteland and The Hollow Men, which considered the bleakness of modernity after the horrors of World War I. He caused scandal with his shocking and cynical metaphors within these poems. And then, in a twist that shocked nearly everyone, Eliot converted to Anglicanism in 1927, the year he wrote this poem, The Journey of the Magi. In the next decade, he would go on to write some of my favorite poems, his magnificent four quartets. He died in 1965. I'll now read The Journey of the Magi to you. Take it in. Focus. You may want to rewind and re-listen after I read it. If rewind is the right word for a podcast. (laughs) Pay attention to what stands out to you. 
a cold coming we had of it. Just the worst time of the year for a journey, and such a long journey. The ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. And the camels, galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camelmen cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women, and the night fires going out and the lack of shelters, and the cities hostile and the towns unfriendly and the villages dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, with the voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all folly. Then, at dawn, we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a watermill beating the darkness, and three trees on the low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door dicing for pieces of silver, and feet kicking the empty wineskins. There was no information, and so we continued. And arriving at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place, it was, as you might say, satisfactory. All this was long ago. I remember, and I would do it again, but set down, this set down, this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. The speaker of this poem, one of the wise men who sought Jesus, tells us the story of his journey. I love these opening lines, just the worst time of year for a journey, because they remind me of something my daughter said to me just the other day. Mama, don't you think it would be better if Christmas was in the fall? (laughs) We had been waxing eloquent on the beauties of autumn in Denver where we live. This was in October as I was writing this. I laughed but acknowledged the basic fact. Things had not been arranged, as we ourselves would arrange them for maximum pleasure or knowledge or obviousness. And this central idea might form the basis of this poem. How strange it is that things are arranged as they are. In Little Gidding, another poem, Eliot writes, And what you thought you came for is only a shell, a husk of meaning, from which the purpose breaks only when it is fulfilled, if at all. Either you had no purpose, or the purpose is beyond the end you figured and is altered in fulfillment. I've loved those lines for a long time because they articulate a central part of what I've learned since hearing about Jesus ever since I can remember, since inviting him into my heart as a preteen. What I thought then meant being a Christian, what I thought I was coming for, is not the same as what I think now, though there are overlaps. We come to God, Adventus, 
with one idea, plan, or purpose vaguely in our minds, and as we come closer to him, the hollowness of so much of human plan and purpose becomes clearer. The purpose that the wise men thought they had come for had only been the husk, the shell, the carrying place of the seed, and they yet wait for the fulfillment of their long winter's journey. The disciples thought they were going to be seated at the right hand of a king. They end up huddled in a secret room as they hide from those murdering him. They end up gaining courage and eventually being murdered or exiled themselves. Joseph, a good devout man, was going to marry a nice Jewish girl. He ends up sheltering, protecting, and marrying a girl who is pregnant, but not with his own child. There had been no death nor birth in the plans unless it was nicely metaphorical, or at their proper and expected places in life's road. Eliot, formerly without faith, can express it boldly. Either you had no purpose, or the purpose is beyond the end you figured, and is altered in fulfillment. The poem starts in complaint. It was cold, the camels were so stubborn, the men missed their palaces, melting sherbets, scantily clad women. Instead, they find unfriendly and dirty rural villages cursing camel drivers and the price gouging that we're all familiar with as travelers today. I had practically the worst meal of my life in London once, $30 for some ghastly fish and chips because nothing was close. We recognize ourselves in the mode of traveler, and yet not an eager one, not a vacationer. In the next stanza, things get a little better. The wise men dip below the snow line and the air smells a little more green. And Eliot crowds in images that are more symbolic of Christ's end than descriptive of the Magi's journey. Three trees silhouetted against the sky, vine leaves over the lintel of a tavern, hands gambling for gleaming silver, feet kicking wineskins. Images, but no information, as the wise man says. They continue onward. Then comes what one commentator calls the most understated baby Jesus in Bethlehem account ever. And arriving at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place, it was, you might say, satisfactory. There is, of course, the pun on satisfactory. The wise man does not know it yet, but we do that Jesus satisfies our debts in his ultimate righteousness and graciousness in his death. But then again, satisfactory is a really funny word to use to describe seeing the face of God as you look upon a newborn. It's more like a word we circle on a survey describing the quality of customer care from an insurance company. In another of the four quartets, Burnt Norton, Eliot writes, humankind cannot bear very much reality. We say satisfactory because there's no word that neatly contains incarnation. We absorb through process, through time. Reality, the deeper reality beyond time and beyond one moment, kairos, sinks into our souls as we pilgrims journey deeper. For it's in the years after that the full impact of meeting God emerges for the Magi. Unable to take in reality all at once, the wise men are transformed in slow work upon the heart as Christ sinks in over time through time. I'll reread the last stanza for you. 
All this was a long time ago, I remember. And I would do it again. But set down, this set down, this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here, in the old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be happy of another death. This stanza is difficult. It captures for me that feeling of having come and realizing that your purpose was only the husk, the carrying case for a spark of something powerful, terrible, and demanding, the way that birth itself is powerful, terrible, and demanding. Birth, even in jubilance, can feel like death, and if you've given birth, perhaps it felt that way for you. It probably feels that way for the infant, I'd imagine, coming from a warm womb, never hungering, in fact, no desire at all, to a chilly world filled with the itch of yearning. The sherbet, the palaces, and the silken girls, sumptuous food, luxury, sex, have lost their ability to satisfy. They would have, inevitably, in the long run, but now there's no deceiving oneself about it. I appreciate Elliot's honesty. One will never not be a pilgrim in this life. This is the longing recognition of Advent. It's a birth that feels like death, that really is death in some sense. We've somewhat culturally ruined the phrase born again because it connotes a particular brand of Christianity and that you should feel a particular way and think particular things about faith. This particular way of feeling that in American Christianity includes phrases like being on fire for the Lord or being born again can be very true in their moments, but they do not fully encompass being born again. In fact, we so often equate being born again with our personal feelings, with the feeling of being faithful or being hopeful or even being joyful, rather than the far more radical gifts of faith hope, and love that often exist alongside doubt, pain, and loss. No longer at ease in the old dispensation, we're permanently on a journey. We've become aliens to ourselves and to our cultures, or more accurately, recognized that we are aliens, recognized the pre-existing state of things to which we often blind or numb ourselves. While I was writing this I had had a hard day earlier in the week. I'd woken up in the middle of the night before with a bad dream and cried. Then the rest of the day, I was just perpetually on the edge of tears. I drove my oldest home from a haircut, and I started crying in the car from the strangest thing, a happy memory. I remembered playing with my siblings and cousins and running down an ugly strip mall in central Phoenix after eating at our favorite Mexican food restaurant, which is now closed. And I cried because that moment would never happen again. I would never be the same girl that I had been. I would never again eat the bean dip at Los Compadres. I would never scream with joy at something so simple as running as fast as I can down a decaying strip mall. My grandparents and my parents are no longer young. They are pilgrims in the world, and I am a pilgrim too. 
Eliot's wise man illustrates the strange position we find ourselves in as Christians, a strange position that we are meant to consider in Advent. Not only between birth and death on the natural progression of human life, we are also between dying and birth. We die into new life. Somehow I'm still surprised that this transformation is often a painful and alienating experience. There are certainly moments of transcendent joy, elation, and quiet peace in my pilgrimage. But there's also the dawning recognition that I am on my way, and these are not stopping points. The church has held for more than a millennium that Advent is the time to meditate upon the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. We can start by remembering that like the Magi, we are pilgrims confusedly on our way to a death and a birth. In East Coker, another of his four quartets, Eliot begins more conventionally, In my beginning is my end. This is old hat for everyone. We know that as soon as we are born, we start our road to death, regardless of when that death actually comes. Our beloved ones grow old, our memories and buildings and institutions decay, time flees from us. But Eliot amends his language, corrects himself as he concludes the poem. In my end is my beginning. Reality beckons us onward, though we only take in a little bit at a time. Thank you for listening to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond. Next week, I promise you it will be a much more conventionally cheerful poem for Christmas after we marinate in Eliot's pilgrimage. If you enjoyed this episode, I so deeply appreciate it if you would rate and review on the podcast service of your choice. It helps others to find it, and it helps me out too. If you're interested in reading more of what I write, I also have a substack gracehammond.substack.com. It's called Medievalish with Grace Hammond. The ish is because I mostly write on medieval things, but sometimes I throw in other fun things too. I'd love to see you there. Until next week, thoughtful advent to you.